Hola mi gente, this is episode 3 of Popular Culture in the Americas and we're going to be talking about windows and mirrors and explore a bit of popular culture thinking about how do we read these texts critically and also how do we put them in conversation with what's happening around the world. At the end of the day, the text that I choose, at least for this project, was about making sure that I was centering the stories and voices of people who have traditionally been marginalized from a lot of academic enterprises. You know, there's a lot of cultural gatekeeping that happens, especially in anthropology, when you think about it. What stories matter? Which ones empower? Those are the questions that are important to me, especially in a classroom, because what stories are worthy? What themes storyline, storytelling mediums are considered academic or rigorous or are deemed as aspirational has traditionally been determined not by the people who are reading these texts in a classroom. Think about these canons where they're talking about people of the Americas, like they're frozen in time. And it was the history began when there was uh, the colonial encounter. That's when, you know, civilization was exported and, and given to these primitive individuals and communities. And I'm saying primitive, obviously, with air quotes, and you can't see that. But trust me, these are some of the questions I think about because stories should also be windows, right? A window is something that you could look into. And the text that we have in the class really should give you a sense of how do we experience another culture or live the life of someone who is different from us, but we're understanding them, we're seeing them, we're hearing them in these texts. And really, these are ways that we can counter some of the assimilationist and xenophobic discourse that then becomes policy. At the end of the day, we should be using windows in these texts to understand history, the perspectives of voices who have been muted, or perhaps we can also build on shared experience, find a shared vocabulary. If these windows help us understand the world a bit better, these texts, right? What possibilities are available to us then? When we start navigating, honoring, uh, and, and not offending these cultures too, right? Like the whole Halloween and canceling campaigns that have been prominent in the last years because, hey, don't wear my culture like a costume, right? And we've seen some of these very horrific, you know, sombreros and 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 even, you know, it gets even more offensive, like cartel drug dealers or, or, or cholas, like these become costumes. And no, you can't just Columbus these cultures, but that doesn't mean you can't appreciate them and honor. And you don't have to be of the culture to do that, right? I think about, or you don't have to even be born into it to become part of the culture. I say this because I think of artists that have been born elsewhere and then their identity has become informed by the place that they live in. Um, in Argentina, we have Luca Prode, this uh, Scottish singer who becomes part of the Argentine rock nacional canon. Me 
the thing is with identities and 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 windows right that who polices them who gives you access and i think about that again with these texts because i always have a sense of who my class uh is made up of right what are the their interests what are their curiosities and how are they invested in building knowledge together? This is when you see your students as co-learners and collaborators, those possibilities of opening up our perspectives become part of the experience and the journey. But then let's think about stories as mirrors because they allow us to see ourselves. And that is also critical. And so how we see ourselves should also be about centering and empowering instead of sometimes when we see ourselves and there's this cognitive uh, dissonance when we're like, that is not my reality. And why are you passing that off as truth, right? And this has happened to me in many anthropological classrooms. Um, I remember reading uh, some ethnographies about selling crack in El Barrio, right? Or um, there was another one about Colombians and, you know, their passion uh, for death and, and violence. And I'm like, what's going on? Hey, I'm in the room that's not my culture. And it's hard then to kind of be safe in these spaces because when you are being told that that's your culture, how do you then counter that? How do you negotiate? How do you offer also a glimpse into your heritage? And in order to do that, you got to also look at yourself and see yourself and understand yourselves. Mirrors help us see not only ourselves in relation to the world, but it helps us build connections and a sense of belonging and create community. And so when we think of mirrors, we should be thinking about what type of knowledge are we sharing about ourselves? For me, um, I grew up in a house of smoke and mirrors, I say. And so I think that's really dangerous also when we're trying to think of a sense of health and self. For me, understanding what it was to be Latina came from my mother, who at times could be an unreliable narrator. And then what the text and the media and school was telling me. And now we can't even study ourselves. Think about this whole controversy around ethnic studies and critical race studies. You can't say gay in Florida. We can't study Black history history because then people are going to feel sad and it's like we need these mirrors just as much as we need windows right we need to be in conversation with understanding also that at the end of the day the makeup of a text includes these important voices that allows us then to come together to be critical right at the end of the day we want to have more global citizenships, ways to be pro-social and to act in our best interest, but understand that our interests go beyond the classroom, right? And so windows and mirrors for me is the way I think of curriculum. It's the way I also engage with the world on a personal level, because I have to think about what storytelling as a spiritual practice, as I call it, for me, what do I want to accomplish with that, right? 
obviously it is important to me and to many people from the Americas to put our stories on the record because sometimes our stories have been told for us and incorrectly with a lot of gaps and important information that has been excluded with purpose as a way to also keep us down. Because that's the thing, when we're in control of our narratives, when we're the ones that are putting up the mirror and also receiving what we see in our reflection, honoring it, loving it, embracing, you know, that to me is power. And that's why popular culture ends up being such a vehicle for change in the Americas. Because at the end of the day, not only do we want to see ourselves, but we want to see ourselves as a community moving in the same direction towards progress, towards justice, towards truth, towards love. I was so excited to talk about telenovelas because I love them. Always have. And yes, I always will. They're problematic, but they're basically audiovisual novels, right? And I'm someone who has always been drawn to them because it's one of the things that I share really deeply with my mother, like this love for telenovelas and also a love for sharing it together because it was something that we shared so much so that in our house, my sister had, me and my sister shared the room growing up and we had a television there, but because she's five years older, she was always in control of the remote. And my sister was not someone who loved to watch television in Spanish. She was very 90210, Say by the Bell, Friends, Seinfeld. Those were her shows, right? But for me, I always spoke more Spanish. I spent a significant time of my childhood in Colombia. And it was just the thing that me and my mother did together that was uncomplicated. It was something that also was a little bit outside of the bounds of our cult. But it was, I guess, also something my mother bent the rules for, right? Because sometimes also, which I think it's interesting, our church services were at the prime time that telenovelas were 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 put on primetime TV. It was like 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, which are the hours that coincide with uh, church services. And that's why we were one of the first families in my neighborhood to have a VCR because my mother used to record her telenovelas, right? And once she did that, she was like, sure, no problem. They don't get in the way, but they never got in the way because at the end of the day, she was just watching them when we got home. And it's a form of escapism, I guess, for her and also for me, right? I grew up at a time also where we didn't have a lot of Latinos in general on television, right? I remember there was this moment that there was this show that John Leguizamo did. I think it was before that show that he put on Broadway, Spicorama. But it was short-lived and I remember that there was a campaign because it had gone on hiatus. But for many of us, it was like, that's one of the shows where they were making fun of some of the cultural things that we understood, right? So it was one of these inside jokes that they were talking about café con leche, arroz con pollo, bite, chuletas. Like, it, it was just a funny skit where he was saying these words in the Spanish language that his audience understood, but maybe at that time, the audience was very limited, right? And so I had other 
windows and mirrors that I would navigate, but they were very complicated and I didn't have the skills to kind of unpack these loaded images. I loved growing up watching shows like Martin or in Living Color because there was a whole bunch more color on television at that time. Or if not, then these were very, you know, white centric stories that felt exclusionary. Even watching Friends growing up for me, it was like, wait, you're going to tell me in the village, like literally blocks away from NYU where I was going to school, there are no brown or black people that drink coffee, right? Like it was so bizarre. But these were some of the questions that I had growing up because I started becoming painfully media literate, right? Like it was like, wait a minute, I don't see myself. That's not my culture. And I remember vividly one time um, I had gone and I lived in the projects, right? So there's a lot of stigma and misrepresentation uh, of these communities, right? It's like morally defunct and there's so much, you know, lawlessness. And it was so funny because one time I had gone on a, on a, I had gone out with this dude um, from school and he walked me home, right? To Avenue D. And we had just seen a film about, again, the same trope, right? This white guy goes into this community of poor brown kids and he, you know, gives them a path by giving him mentorship and resources. And then, you know, he's such a great guy and these kids have a better life because of him. One of those. But there was a scene where they were actually showing the projects and this baby came out in um in a diaper. And I mean, I was like, who does that? No, no one. Like, come on. It's not like that. And lo and behold, I was trying to get into my building and I don't have a key. And the next door neighbor from the first floor was actually going to her other neighbor's house. So he looks in the window of my building and sees a baby barefoot in a diaper walking through. And I was like, ah, okay. So how do we separate that fiction from that reality? Or are they one in the same? Is it an incomplete truth? telenovelas, right? What was interesting about them at the time also growing up here in the United States or when I lived here was that they were usually from two markets, Venevision, right? The ones that were produced in Venezuela. And that usually was in the morning slots, right? So from 11 in the morning to about 4 p.m. And then you get like those talk shows and those news shows. And then at seven, you get the soap operas from Mexico because these were the two producers of telenovelas to the global market. But then as time passed by, you started getting more Colombian soap operas come in because of Telemundo, which started broadening its uh, networks. We even got Argentine soap operas, which I remember when Muñeca Verava came out, which was the first Argentine soap opera with Natalia Oreiro, who's from Uruguay. And she was actually the main actress. And it started diversifying the type of stories we saw, but there were some familiar tropes. And so I want to talk a little bit about this. And there is no shame watching soap operas. I always laugh when people are like, I don't have a television because all I do is read. And I'm like, I assure you, I read tons. But I also love television because at the end of the day, that's another medium and a powerful one and we can't ignore it. Now, what are telenovelas? 
A telenovela is a limited-run serial dramatic programming popular throughout the Americas. Unlike soap operas, telenovelas have an ending, and usually it's a happy one, although some have deviated from that, you know, happy ending soap opera or telenovela ending. Soap operas here in the United States, like Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, those are endless, and I always thought that was interesting because that's why my mother could never watch those um, because it's like, dude, it's seasons 27, right? Like, and they're the same people. I'm not invested in their stories in that way, which was different because when we watched a lot of these soap operas, for me, the one that was kind of life-changing was Café con Aroma de Mujer, not the remake that has been made, the reboot that I kind of see sometimes, even just the cover. And I'm like, no, that's not how I remember it. And it was about this woman who was from the Colombian fields and has a child and is a single mother and raises her who becomes this professional. It's kind of obvious why I love that storyline, right? The first telenovelas were actually produced in Brazil, Cuba, and Mexico. Telenovelas combine drama and comedy and sometimes just one or the other. But at the end of the day, telenovelas were important because they provided an insight and an escape. Also, because if you're working right at night and you're tired, those soap operas give you fast entertainment and transport you into a world that you might have access to or you might not. But either way, it's entertaining. Now, when I think of soap operas in places like rural Colombia, where sometimes I was watching soap operas there too, because I was in Colombia, um, not everyone had a television, right? My aunt's house where I would stay was one of the few that had a television in the town. And I have this vivid memory of seeing people looking at the soap opera through the window of our house which was strange, but at the same time, it was something that I was associating mostly with soccer, right? Because if you didn't have a television, you would still watch the match. You would just watch it from a window, a literal window. Now, let's talk a little bit about the categories of telenovelas because they have different ones. You have ones with working class melodramas, and these typically feature a poor woman who falls in love with a rich man, a tale of transgression. Doris Summer talks about these stories being foundational fictions, right? They're historical romances set in colonial times, which are very offensive if you're a person of color, of any color, because if you're indigenous in these soap operas, they're not necessarily representing, you know, the, the best of times. I always think about that, too, because there are a lot of uh, stories uh, and that people love to watch, like Gone with the Wind. And if you're a person of color like myself, it's uncomfortable, right? Because it's like, what are we glorifying? What are we romanticizing? I was not even a person or protected as one under the law in colonial times, right? Then you have teen dramas, and these portray the lives of high school teenagers and their issues with sex, drugs, and other coming-of-age topics. It's interesting because this has become a, a big Netflix you know, genre. Um, I think of this show from Spain, Elite, which is interesting because Elite is in this boarding school, posh one in Madrid, Spain, but you also have different... Latin American people in, in, in the story and their plot lines and, you know, them trying to kind of make sense of being perceived as 
you know, less than in this world, right? Because they're brown or because they're, you know, come from a family of immigrants. It's really a strange drama, but it's a familiar one at the same time. I think of teen soaps when I was growing up, like Amigas y Rivales. Another one that was big was Rebelde, right? And it was about these rebellious teens who fall in love with the wrong guy. And sometimes things go bad, but usually, again, there's some type of a happy ending, and these happy endings usually involve a marriage, right? Restoration of honor, if you will. You have romantic uh, comedies, which portray love stories with some of, or lots of comedy, and it's funny and entertaining. But then you'll also have mystery thrillers, which portray a mysterious death or disappearance. And there is one I would like to kind of reference, and I watched it in Colombia and they used to give it at 1130 at night. And the reason I remember this so vividly is because when I was growing up in Colombia, we wake up really early and we go to bed really early too. In comparison to, let's say, my life in New York where I had a television in my room and I was able to kind of watch it when everyone else was asleep. And so I was more in control of like my nights than in Colombia, where it was like, well, what am I going to do? There's no television in the room. Are we going to talk? And then, you know, you did, but then you just go to bed. But my cousin would get up for this soap opera at 1130, literally wake up because she had already been sleeping like two hours at this point. And the soap opera was called Por Que Mataron a Betty Si Era Tan Buena Muchacha. I guess the loose translation would be like, why did they kill Betty if she was such a good girl? Until this day, the only reason I remember that soap opera, because the title, it was so ridiculously long, but at the same time, memorable. And the whole story was about a mystery of a death and a, and kind of like a weird um, adaptation of murders in the building, right? Like it was just... Um, a strange plot line, but very engrossing because it was one of the few mystery ones that, that had emerged at the time. But again, these soap operas were interesting in the 90s because it's when we started seeing more of them be exported to the United States, like the Three Marias. If you know Talia, she is a singer from Mexico. She used to be on a lot of these teen soap operas, I remember as well. She's now married to Tommy Matola, who used to be married to Mariah Carey, but Again, the world that they live in perhaps is very small. And I've always been a Thalia fan, despite, you know, the rumors that she had removed the rib, whatever. It was the first time that there was someone who was kind of in the mainstream and was one that looked and felt aspirational, but also familiar, right? And so that was something that I always thought was interesting because at the end of the day, these telenovelas also had a lot of subversive plots. So she did Maria Mercedes. Maria Mercedes pa servirle a usted. Then she did Marimar and Maria del Barrio. Again, they kind of have the same type of storyline running through. And so these fall under the working class melodrama. But then you have these historical romances that were emerging at the time, like Corazón Salvaje. 
But these were stories that were romanticizing some of the violence that uh, women face, but that also normalizes it. One of the first uh, telenovelas to be exported to other non-Latin American countries, such as Russia, China, and the United States, was Los Rico También Lloran. It's kind of that canonical soap opera a lot of people reference because of all the memories that they have attached to it. But think about the title, Even the Rich Cry, right? Like, it is drama to the unteenth right and i love it i did i love teen dramas too quinceanera muchachitas 1990 clase 406 which was recent 2002 who says that 2002 is recent but i'm talking about this genre also in a historical timeline many of the actors in the norella genre actually ended up becoming political figures too i know that one of the actresses that i saw in the teen dramas ends up being the first lady of mexico in recent years both these novelas aired in mexico's television network televisa and in the u.s by univision both were successful throughout Latin America. Now, the telenovelas in Mexico were often thought to be used as a government tool to distract citizens from national issues. The commercial development of the Mexican novela is credited to the Jewish-Chilean immigrant named Valentin Pimstein. In the late 1990s, uh, the company claimed telenovelas were Mexico's leading export product. The racist tendency, however, to use fair-skinned actors in all of its lead roles is still common, right? And so it became a big issue because there was campaigns against Televisa, which is the exporter of these soap operas. And there was a big campaign that I remember the tagline because I thought it was very clever. It was Televisa te idiotiza. So it makes you dumb, right? It's a Mexican mass media company considered the largest in Latin America and the Spanish-speaking world. It is owned by the Azcarraga family, a wealthy Mexican medium family dynasty. Um, we have those here. It's considered Mexico's monopolist with control over majority of Mexico's cable and satellite television. It is the leader for distributing and producing Mexican novelas, which many of them are adaptations from other countries because you had also La Fea Mas Linda or something like that, which was an adaptation of Betty La Fea, which was from Colombia, and then it was adapted into the soap opera or the drama that you saw here with America Ferrara, who plays Betty. And I guess her only claim to being ugly was that, I don't know, it was that she was poor or that she was an immigrant. But it really did not make sense, and a lot got lost in that translation. But think about also censorship. Um, Venevision in Venezuela ended up actually closing down some of their uh, productions with Hugo Chavez because it was considered uh, to be a, a tool of the government. And even though... Um, Mexico and Venezuela were producing these soap operas. It doesn't mean that then you didn't have other markets that started opening up. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, we started seeing soap operas like Chica da Silva, which was also a soap opera uh, of colonial times, but it was of an enslaved woman who ends up actually becoming the wife or the partner of 
uh, her abuser because can you have consent in these soap operas if you are considered property this was the thing that used to blow my mind because it was like I understand that they're trying to romanticize this very violent period, but what was actually different about Chica da Silva, this soap opera, was that she was not as submissive, so she wasn't perceived or portrayed as a, a passive recipient of the oppression of, of slavery. In fact, she would, you know, get back at the at her oppressors. One of them was actually literally cooking him up and serving him in a meal and imagine me I'm watching these stories and I'm like that's bananas that's crazy but that is fascinating right but she was actually a historical figure so for me seeing an enslaved woman who was um, not necessarily just being treated in the way that we were typically seeing enslaved women right like she was actually um, using the the small available opportunities that she had to resist in very powerful ways and that stayed with me which is very different let's say from the soap opera i once wrote about in my dissertation cara sucia cara sucia was a story um set in venezuela it was a class again transgressive story her face was literally dirty because she was poor but in the story one of the scenes that i saw that stayed with me um was that she was uh sexually assaulted by the protagonist raped right literally on a table which i remember also being like oh my god and at this point i couldn't have been older than 12 years old but she gets sexually assaulted and then episodes later a lot of forgiveness happens but ultimately she gets married and the whole thing is she got married also by a priest even though she wasn't really technically a virgin and that brought up a lot of problematic issues for me triggering ones because even at 12 I was like that is problematic right because how could there be a happy ending in this story when she was just sexually assaulted but he did it because he loved her right and that trope has been very prevalent in a lot of these telenovelas where pain and suffering are also part of being beautiful and being in love or being loved even to the point of violence but think about these Latino stereotypes because these also get circulated in these uh, telenovelas, right? And I think it is important also to think about how they are in conversation with Hollywood, which is another powerful ethnographer and media industry. So if we think about the semiotic process, right, we have words and images that become vehicles for ideas or concepts, and then the sounds and gestures which are representing reality and connecting to the individual's expressive, subjective expression, right? They're constantly in conversation with each other. So Charles Ramirez Berg writes, a mediated stereotype then operates by gathering a specific set of negative traits, so signifiers and assembling them into a particular image, which is a sign. And so think about el bandido as a sign or an image or the traits and signifiers that we'll see and like in the colors that are used on the screen, sombreros, the smirk, 
or the signifiers in this case of El Bandido, which could have cognitive meetings that are racialized, that have to do with moral failures and policing a nation. Now, it's important also to remember the triangled viewer. So your audience is invited into a triangle. They are asked to take a side, be in the hero side, which is in group, or an other character, which is out of group, or just a minor one. And the easiest way into movie is assuming positive points. So hence identification. And so you start with characters that are entrenched in particular storytelling conventions. So it's goal-oriented protagonists who's usually white, handsome, heterosexual, Protestant, stereotypes and minor characters, which will be villains, sidekicks, tentresses. They provide the heroes with opportunities to display moral, physical, or intellectual superiority. Now, Let's consider, again, the cinematic elements contributing to stereotypical signs. So you have the scenes, the cinematography, the editing, the sound, the costuming and makeup and the performance. Now, let's move into narrative structure and think about the beginning and how it aspires to bring kind of an equilibrium or a middle or disruption or an ending which tends to restore the status quo. And Berg then elaborates and says the status quo posited in the movies as the rest or the best of the world is one that is safe, it's peaceful and prosperous, but it is also one that is white upper middle class, Protestant, English speaking, one that conforms to Anglo norms of beauty, health, intelligence, and so forth. Now there's a stereotype commutation test, right? So try to substitute another ethnicity into the role being analyzed. Switch out the character. If the part can be played just as well as another ethnic, national, or for that matter, gender group, then it is probably not a stereotype, but rather a stock comic or dramatic type. Think about the jealous husband or the flirtatious wife, the deceptive best friend, and so on. And if no other ethnicity can be readily substituted for the role, then chances are that it relies on specific stereotypical traits of a particular cultural group to make its comedic or dramatic impact. So let's go to the six Latino stereotypes. The bandido is the one I first mentioned, but the six ones are el bandido, the harlot, the male buffoon, the female clown, the Latin lover, and the dark lady. Now, the historical point here to put into conversation is that sometimes these stereotypes were combined. Sometimes they were altered superficially, but their core defining and demeaning characteristics have remained consistent for more than a century and are still evident today. Think about El Bandido. He's dirty, unkept. He has oily hair usually. There are scars and scowls, vicious, cruel, treacherous irrational, emotional, violent, usually not very proficient with the English language. I think of Scarface, right, 1983. But we could go back to 1967, Frank Silvera's in Hombre. But also, I remember in the previous episode, I mentioned Toy Soldiers, El Bandido, right? But then there's also all the characters played by Antonio Banderas, usually, or um, what is it, Javier Bardem in the late 90s, 2000s, right? They almost became synonymous with these type of roles, which are problematic. But the harlot, it's an interesting one because it's like the, I guess, the counterpart to El Bandido. It's a secondary character. 
hot-tempered. She's slave to passion. She's an inherent nymphomaniac, a sex machine, innately lust for white men, right? Dangerous not to be trusted. And in 1946, you have this uh, in, in a, a film called My Darling Clementine, but also in 1998, Six Days, Seven Nights, another strong, powerful reference. But I think about the women who emerge in this time, um, Lupes Velez, who ends up being like the first spitfire that we see in silent film. And I remember seeing her work and thinking, but she's a silent actress. How is she seducing and a lot of it had to do with body language or even the the way she was costumed right her representation was curated in such a way that it was always suggestive even if she was not speaking then you have the male buffoon so if you ever saw the three amigos right then you know uh, alfonso dao's character leo carrillo and the cisco kid in 1950 but again, the male buffoon. Think about so many films where you have the token Latino friend who's there for comic relief, right? But I even think about the films that were done in in Mexico with Cantinflas, which is probably a, a really old reference, or La India Maria, right? Which, again, then you start seeing how these stereotypes get put into different groups, right? Indigenous people then become the buffoons. But talking about its exportation um, to the world through Hollywood, you have also the female clown, counterpart to the male buffoon and it neutralizes latina sexuality but it also allows the hero to reject white women and maintain wasp status which is again um a term that was used in, in the text more so than one that i would use but you get what i mean it's she is sullied and and kind of a joke lupez velez also did this role she did it in hananulu in 1941 but I always think about this in terms of the type of, you know, comedic stories where Latinas are centralized, but that almost becomes problematic. Jane the Virgin, I would argue, is one to be scrutinized through that lens. The Latin lover, right, which is established by Valentino, Rudolph Valentino in The Shake in 1921. And he shows primal sexuality. It's sensuous but dangerous romantic promise that could get out of control right but again going back to antonio banderas think of him in 2005 with the mask of sorrow um again they're kind of playing this role then there's the dark lady which now hugo benavides uh he's from fordham university he actually was my outside reader on my dissertation but he has this great book where he looks at narco novellas and again, this dark lady that emerges through these uh, narco dramas is the counterpart to the Latin lover. She is virginal, but also inscrutable, aristocratic, but she arouses the white man's primal desire more than the white woman. So then she becomes also an uh, enemy of, uh, of the white woman because she could steal right? Their husband, because that's how that works. But think about how this trope then also emerges in a lot of the soap operas as well, right? Where the plot line is an illegitimate child that then gets raised to be, you know, 
the true heir of all the riches despite you know being the son of the maid and what's so funny to this story is that listen my aunt worked as a maid and had the child of the person she worked for so these stories as fantastic as they may seem are rooted in some type of reality right but the big point here is that part of hollywood movie making paradigms are actually common, repeated, naturalized. They tend to shift and change, but on a very minor scale because I could still now and look at films produced today that still have these tropes, right? And it goes back to, you know, even early cinema. Think of 1908, The Greaser's Gauntlet, or Bronco Billy and The Greaser. And greaser here was the term referred to Latino men. It's a slur, it's offensive, but it was literally in the title in 1914. Now, this is a distorted image of what Latinos and immigrants were, but it was also a way to make them appear as different and not part of the social fabric. And this is why it's important to think about also ways in which texts, even though they're complicated, can be a vehicle to resist these very stereotypes. And I was reading an analysis on Jennifer Lopez's 1997 film Anaconda, which, again, when I viewed it the first time, I was just viewing it without critically analyzing. But Berg actually notes that Hollywood cinema is not simple, static, or ideologically one-sided, right? At the end of the day, the film does have dominant conflicts that are important for us to think about contradiction or contain progressive elements or that these actors in this case j-lo she embeds irony and subversion in her performance and so what are these five cinematic categories that feature these counter stereotypes think about the depart from the hollywood paradigm the ideologically oppositional those that feature uh, Latinx actors uh, subverting these types or the films that are produced and made by Latino, Latina, uh, Latin directors to counter, again, the Hollywood paradigm to accurately represent, to offer windows that are not smudged or, you know, foggy with the smoke of Hollywood. So sometimes they could be only partly stereotypical, but this still, again, is very conflicting and again you'll see let's say flying down to rio in 1933 it's a stereotype with what is considered the buffoon and the dark lady and it supports again white supremacist narratives but it also has some uh reversals of the stereotype with the scene on the beach and having this bicultural romance and then the protagonist Julio makes this noble sacrifice. But then I want to counter that to Anaconda in 1997 when Jennifer Lopez's heroism undermined actually the Hollywood paradigm because the ritual commemoration of wasp male heroism is hostile territory and ideologically and symbolically of U.S. imperialism in the third world. So think about all those films where the United States goes invade the land of lawlessness, right, in, in Latin America. And these films were big in the 1980s and 90s because they were also somehow justifying in the national imaginary 
things like, you know, Operation Condor. Think about it even, I mean, I always think about this with the films of like Rambo, the 1980s, Cobra, where Sylvester Stallone in all these different franchises goes back into Vietnam and then basically rebels and, and saves and, and, and punishes and, you know, restores American honor, right? And these films were really a result of the Vietnam War where you had this national demoralized, deflated, and, and also rightfully angry nation. So how do you create this shared collective sense of patriotism, if not through this genre where you see this soldier who has been wrong? by the Vietnamese, the Genghis Khan, right? Not by the U.S. military, go back and, you know, save people. The same thing when you think about a lot of these films that sometimes are also about subversion, but in interesting ways. My favorite J-Lo film, because I've watched them all, um, is going to be always enough, right? The story of this abused woman who then takes back, it, and it wasn't like sleeping with the enemy, right? Which was the Julia Roberts equivalent. She actually literally fights back. And I remember watching it and being really excited about seeing a story of a woman who was violated and, and, and abused in the context of a marriage and then is fighting to save her daughter and herself, right? And just the, the meticulous long game that she played to me was really what good movies do, which is get you excited and you start living almost vicariously. I was like, well, now I'm going to learn self-defense. Not that I would, you know, find myself in that situation or, but in the back of my mind, but what if, right? And this was before, obviously, I got married and, and, and Pablo. But still, I remember thinking, wow, you know, that's a powerful story to tell Latinas to fight back. But at the same time, I mean, how many uh, women, especially me, who has worked with domestic violence survivors, have the time, the resources, the energy, or, or even the will or opportunity to go invest and train in like MMA, right? And then go, I'm going to get you back, you know? But think about the the Latinos uh, in Hollywood that we also saw brown face. I can't forget Charleston Heston playing Vargas, right? In Touch of Evil in 1958. So yes, like blackface has been a problem, so has brown face. But to me, you know, this facilitates a lot of, um, problems uh, that get normalized and Latinos are not heterogeneous, right? They, and, and, and this happens a lot to this very day, um, in Hollywood where unless you speak Spanish, you wouldn't notice it. Like when they'll have, let's say someone who's, uh, presents as Brown and you're like, Oh wow, he's playing the role of a Mexican. Then you hear him. You're like, no, he's Dominican or he's Colombian. But, you know, all Spanish is not sounding the same. But the idea that, you know, we have this one Latino representative, this pan-Latino look, I mean, that's real. But that's also part of engaging with stereotypes, right? And you have some progressive films that have been made, 1948, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, or Salvador, 1986. Although these films do follow that you know, colonizing Columbus wasp adventurer, to use Charles Ramirez Burke's uh, word in the third world formula, 
They nevertheless, he says, make some pointed critiques of U.S. interference in the internal affairs of Latin American nations. So again, even pop culture is fighting back against things like, you know, the border. Think of Betty Davis's border town with Paul Mooney or Salt of the Earth, right? That's a great also reference to ways in which film, the tools that were used to kind of... Uh, tear you down become the weapons by which you uplift not only yourself but your community it is important that we talk about the relationship of media and globalization how are the questions of media culture or visual representation understood within this discussion also what are some of the important movements represented by global or regional media that suggest optics other ones or other visions that circulate and aren't just as powerful in calling a new media order. Globalization describes the late 20th century condition of encounter and interdependence across cultures, societies, nations, and regions precipitated by an unrepresented expansion of capital on a global scale, changes in world political structures, especially after World War II, that included the following. The rise of the United States and decolonization of the formerly colonized world, a shift from the concept of the nation state as bounded and independent toward a range of economic, social, and political connections across nations. Think of Mercosur in Latin America, which is Uruguay, Argentina, I believe Brazil. So with that passport, right, if I have my Argentine passport, I could go live and work in these other countries or the European Union. A shift from the concept of the nation state was critical because now we have things like the internet, which compresses time and space. And also another feature was an acceleration in the scale, mode, and volume of exchange and relationship in nearly all fields of human activity. Because for a very long time in many of these places also, the television, let's say, they consume was limited. Or in rural Colombia, I mean, getting to see a movie in the pueblo my mother was from, that was not a possibility unless you had money and you could go to the adjacent city like Cartagena. But even that I mean, think about it. To consume television also comes at a price in Latin America. Think of electricity. Or it's not a necessary commodity in many places also, right? Because you have more of an outside life. But then at the same time, you have times and spaces where a television becomes a unifying experience. In Argentina, we eat our dinner really late, which is typical over there after 9, 10. And in the summer, one of my favorite memories is putting the table, the dinner table in the backyard, taking out the television. And we're watching from soap operas to Cosquín when they would have their folkloric national festivals. And it wasn't about what we were watching, but it was the experience, the memory of watching it together. Now, it's important also to understand that media within globalization has been understood through several lenses. And I think one of the ones that is important for us to think about is cultural imperialism. 
This argument emphasizes the information technology divide within dominant cultures, which impose information products, values, or those of less dominant ones, right? So the hybridization thesis is another one. And this one stresses that globalization of economy, trade, and migration has created cultures that are hybridized, mixed, syncretic, and composite. Globalization creates combinations of sameness and difference, center to periphery, periphery to center, creolization, and regional media productions. But let's talk about that new media order. What does it look like? Well, it has to go beyond sameness and difference and suggest that cultural exchanges are more complicated than similarity and difference. You have polycentrism, indigenization, overlapping scapes, and this also leads to innovation, which is the creation of an alternative approach to media and visual cultures. Now, media communication networks are unevenly distributed across the globe in ways to conform to the uneven wealth and development of countries. So rapid development of communication media in the post-war years was dominated by multinational elites based in the most powerful nations, subjugating the newly independent post-colonial nations, developing countries to what we now understand as cultural imperialism. So in 1980, actually, the UNESCO Commission, which is the United Nations Education Science Cultural Organization, headed by Sean McBride, reported that the major news agencies of the United States, the Associated Press, UPI, the UK has Reuters and France, which is Agence uh, France Press, had a monopoly over flows of news to and from developing countries. They asserted a need for an African reporting on Africa, an Indian perspective on South Asia, as well as having people from Latin America also speak to their truth. And in Latin America, you have this relationship also of journalism, right? Which is truth telling, or that's what it should be. And uh, fiction writers, right? So Garcia Marquez was a journalist, right? And also you have Jorge Luis Borges, who also wrote in the press, right? But think about what was happening at the time as these countries that were now fully also becoming independent were also moving towards different versions of democracy after, let's say, the dictatorships of the Southern Cone, the 1980s and the 1990s, to put your truth on the record was critical to represent it, to see it was the way that the nation was not going to forget the atrocities that has been committed in the name of democracy, in the name of justice, in the name of whatever it may be. But what was critical was not to forget because if we forget, we will repeat this story because repetition is another feature of the greater story of the Americas. So we remember, so we don't repeat, but at the same time, we recover by remembering, right? There's a healing that happens when we hold on to our truths that are constantly being attacked. And this is why I approach the world as a window and a mirror. 